Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock Jock, Steve Price. I don't like Shock Jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Welcome to the latest On The Record podcast as we talk to some of Australia's best-known media identities and personalities. On The Record catches up this episode with the fabulous Kerri-Ann Kenley, TV and radio star. Cat talks about her last visit with husband John to the Logies and how she cared for him after a tragic accident that left John a quadriplegic. I can honestly say I, I would give away 50 years of this career and all those incredible experiences and anything else I could think of just to have you standing right here by my side holding my hand. She always seemed to put me first and you know, she, she makes me feel as though she loves me all the time. Australian media royalty. Now, this is a woman who's never been afraid of any media challenge. She spent, and I don't want to age her here, but she spent half a century making us all laugh and cry, making some Australians shout at their TV sets. She's been a radio host. She's a talented singer and, I'm told, a pretty good dancer. In fact, I've witnessed that. She's hosted her own national TV shows across, I think, all of the commercial networks. And, of course, she's also in the Logies Hall of Fame. Welcome to this edition to the fabulous Kerri-Ann Kenley. How great to catch up with you again. Oh, wow, Steve. I'm pretty impressed with that intro. Thank you very much. All completely (laughs) factual, except I need an early fact check. Have you worked on 9, 10 and 7? Yes. Not the ABC, not permanently, but I've done several shows <laughs> no, on the ABC. Neither of us are all that welcome on the ABC, I wouldn't have thought, <laughs> Kerry ann Certainly not now. <laughs> not at all. What's your favourite medium, TV, radio or print? TV. Without question, TV is. Um, and I, I have done a bit of radio. Um, I ran. I also ran 2CH for John Singleton back in the 90s for about just under two years. I also did Breakfast uh, when he was sort of rebranding the station. But, and, you know, it was a bit of fun, but no, I, I just, I get TV, I understand, and it's live TV. Um, so from 1981 to 2011, so that was Good Morning Australia uh, for 11 years, uh, Monday to Friday on, on uh, Channel 10, then midday, then uh, mornings with Kerri Ann on Channel 9. That was 30 years, Monday to Friday, virtually the whole time. And yeah, I just get live TV. It's, it's, what I feel best in. I'm going to get onto that in a minute, but I mean, when you think about what you've just said, you've probably done—not probably—I would, I would hazard a guess—you've done more live TV than any other person in Australia. Um, I, I would think so because the only other person, even more than Bert, come, maybe. Yeah, only, yes, only because um, I, I did a lot more live TV of my own, live TV of my own shows back in the the eighties and. He started a lot of his live TV with the, you know, the morning show uh, only in the 90s. So, yeah, probably. And, then you know, it's three and four hours or so. So, yeah, it's a, it's a chunk of. You think I'd get it right eventually. Well, you got it right more, more than you got it wrong. And it's uh, having done a little bit of it myself, I know how hard it is. Let's go back to the beginning, though. You are a proud Queenslander, born in Queensland. What was growing up in Brisbane like? 
Um, Sandgate, which is about uh, 13 miles uh, north toward Redcliffe. It's terribly fashionable now with Shorncliffe and Sandgate, but uh, not so fashionable then. It was just a fabulous childhood, the quintessential Aussie childhood. You, you know, you'd walk over the hill to, um, you know, state school and then ride your bike uh, a mile or so to uh, high, state high school. Uh, you know, you'd run around the neighbourhood and always got home before dark, as you were told. Uh, a couple of brothers and si- one sister, two brothers, and you know, all the kids from the neighbourhood always. Uh, you know, we were we were the hub of the neighbourhood because Mum always wanted uh, us around to check on what we were doing. So all the kids graduated to uh, our place. We had a big backyard, and Mal and the boys would play uh, cricket out the back, and it was you know that atypical. Of the quintessential fabulous childhood, and I bet it helped that your. Uh, I read that your dad uh, was actually a, a bit of a handyman. He was a builder, and he liked running hobby farms. So, you would have had the best place for the other kids to come and play. What was your dad like? Oh, dad was just just a fabulous, wonderful, tall, six foot tall, handsome man. Very quiet. So you obviously uh, got your good the- looks from your dad, right? <laughs> oh, mum's not shabby. She's not shabby, and she's ninety-eight and a half now. And she's still with me. She oh. lives with me. Um, but dad was a boy from the Darling Downs. His father passed away when he was fourteen, so they all had to move to uh, Brisbane, and uh, the other part of his family took the farm. Uh, then uh, a few years later, uh, he met mum down in Brisbane. Uh, they got married, and two days later, after their marriage, he went uh, off to Townsville, then New Guinea for the war. And it was only very, very much later in life, in, in fact, only several years ago, that we found out um, through various means that Dad had ended up with uh, post-traumatic syndrome, which is how they diagnose it now. Um, at, when we were growing up very early on, uh, Dad would have, as Mum would put it, oh, a bit of an attack of the nerves. He's just gone to bed for a little bit. And Mum used to have to actually really take hold of the, you know, the household and keep it going. And he had malaria, you know, on a, on a, or the, that fluey type syn- uh, syndrome that comes back after malaria. So he had a lot of those sickness problems and mum always nursed him back to health and had to run the, the little concrete contracting business itself. So we now realise, um, and he was only in his 70s when he, he talked to someone about it. It wasn't us because he never mentioned the war. He never, ever talked about the war. But you realise all those years later how we were blithely unaware of the trauma that must have been going through the mind of just a soft, gentle boy from the Darling Downs who had to go to war. Well, probably every family of yours and my generation are impacted and affected by, by those those incidents where relatives went off to the war, aren't they? Everybody we know I, probably. Yes, yeah, I, I think it's, it is a generational thing. Um, and uh, I, we're glad for it. It is. It, it was the time, um, but unfortunately, these days, not a lot of people appreciate it. And uh, you know, you've got people ripping down statues. Um, they just don't understand different times, and they're too intolerant to actually understand. At the time, that was uh, a, not even appropriate. But at the time, that's the way it was, and too many people want to change history. Do I get a sense that your mum protected you from some of the, the the worst impacts of that PTSD on your dad? Oh, without question. None of us knew until Dad would have been in his 70s 
um, and he'd, he'd never applied for the for Department of Veteran Services, never, ever in his life, till he was in his 70s. And uh, to to get, you know, whatever benefit because he had prostate cancer and somebody said, oh, well, you know, you should get some help from Department of Veterinary Services and that, because they didn't believe that you should bleed off the government. You know, if you, if you could, you did it yourself. Um, but to, to um, uh, get some benefits because mum and dad were not wealthy people, um, you know, were working class. And uh, he had to go and talk to people there and he went to a psychiatrist. And that's when, for the first time in his life, he actually told this person everything that had happened and, you know, even mum was shocked. Yeah, it seems to me like you got your sense of common sense from from your mum. Let's talk about how you started in TV. I think you and I got something in common, actually. I once appeared uh, on as a kid on an Adelaide TV show hosted by a bloke called Ian Fairweather called the Channel Niners. Now, that was in Adelaide. What I had to do was a forward roll, a somersault, to promote a local gym where I was going doing, I don't know why I was going to a gym, but I was. You started your TV career on the same show, but the Brisbane version, didn't you? Yes, Uncle Jim Eilis, um, and uh, <laughs> it, it, it was the TAA uh, Flyers or something, and then it changed names a few times. But, yeah, I mean, up in Brisbane, um, I used to come home, look at the telly and go, no, I'd like, I think I'd like to do that, you know, black and white, and we all look much better in black and white. Um, and she said, well, you know, you have to call. And so I used to call poor Uncle Jim on a fairly regular basis, and I do think they call it stalking now. Um, eventually, he invited uh, me up and um, with mum and dad drove me up uh, to Mount Cooper to Channel 9 and I did an audition and uh, mimed a song at the time and um, a couple of weeks later we did that on television. I used to produce these little concerts uh, when I was at school. So a bunch of us from school went up there and then I did a little solo piece and he asked me um, a little while later to join the show as a, a bit of a co-host. So I was, you know, thrilled. I bet when you first went into a TV show, a TV studio, you know, the shiny floor, all the cameras and the cameramen, and in those days they had floor directors and all of that, you were dazzled, right? You just must have looked at the door and gone, this is what I want to do. I just walked in light camera action studio, literally bright-eyed, bushy-tailed going, this feels great. And it did. It just felt like home and I was absorbed it. I spent as much time as I possibly could. And I remember some of the, you know, the crew and the other, God, I'm tired. It's been all day. Well, I want to go home. I've gone, I want to stay. It was like charge. Were you good at school? Uh, no, look, I'm a plotter. What they politely called a plotter. My sister uh, was the academic, um, very bright, and I followed her three years later in school and they've gone, oh, you're Jan's sister. Oh, well, never mind. Try as hard as you can. <laughs> That's what happens always when one of your siblings is smarter than what you are. So how did you end up going from uh, miming songs on the Channel Niners in a Brisbane TV studio to ending up living for a while in the 70s and early 80s in the United States? How did that happen? Well, and I also like to sing, um, and so you know, I started Very singing. Very good at it too. Did, Oh well, you know, there was there was a time, um, but yeah. So I started doing quite a few tours and and um, you know pub gigs and wedding gigs and all that sort of stuff around Brisbane. 
and then when I had a you know a good enough cabaret show, I'd do a little bit more national touring. And by the time I was, I think probably eighteen, I'd, I'd finished up. I went from Channel Nine to the O10 network, as it was then, and had a Saturday morning show, three-hour really? live Saturday morning show. Yeah, doing what? Um, uh, well, I hosted the Saturday show, which was nine till twelve. And we had a little castle set up, and there was my butler, and then <laughs> had Baron von Weirdo, and uh, he was the doom, 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 doom character. Uh, and we had uh, a little live audience. We had wheels, and there was just a bit of a plot every week uh, with me in the castle and uh, giving away prizes and, you know, uh, and Peter Rudder. I don't know if you remember the radio uh, guy, Peter Rudder, of, you know, many years, Brisbane and Sydney. He also was the, the young dude on it. So um, we, we just had these little scripts that we followed and in between that uh, gave away prizes and it was a three-hour live show that we virtually made up every Saturday. Please tell me Vision of That still exists. Oh, very black and white, but not <laughs> a lot because they just didn't no, remember they those. they chucked everything they out, were, didn't they? Well, they were recording on big two- and three-inch tapes in those uh, two-inch tapes. Mm. And, of course, it was pretty expensive. So, you know, they'd have it for a while and they'd record over it yeah. and then record over it. And lost so again. much great stuff. So how did oh. you end up from that going to the US? Why did you choose to go there? Well, I, um, I did a, a few shows in New Zealand and met uh, a girl on this Miss New Zealand Roadshow who happened to be Miss World 1974. Miss World? Miss World. Her name was Patsy Yun. And in fact, she was the runner up. She was Miss Jamaica uh, and she was the first non black uh, Miss Jamaican. She was Eurasian, beautiful creature. So she, as part of the Miss World pageant, was um, working on the Miss New Zealand Roadshow. And I was the singer with Frankie Davidson, another famous, uh, you know, Aussie performer. And for six weeks, she and I just became besties. And as she lived in Jamaica, she said, oh, you should come and visit me in Jamaica. And I've gone, she that's a good idea. So um, I, I went over um, sometime later and stayed with her in Jamaica. How old were you then? Uh, I think I was about, uh, twi- I think I just turned 21. That's a big thing back then to go to yeah. the other side of the world like that. But do you remember those days where you thought, oh, my God, you know, if I go overseas, It'll be the only trip I ever get in my entire life. Yeah. You know, it was a once-off. Not like today, well, before COVID, catching a plane, you know, is just, just go to the airport and pick a city. Well, you had to uh, save for a country. year to get the airfare, for the airfare. And I did. And because I had been working since I was 13, um, I, I could afford to do it. And I had a fabulous time. And then I thought, I better go to New York because I'll never be on this side of the world again. I uh, went to New York, back to Jamaica, went back to New York again and thought, hmm, I really like this and I think I want to stay here for a while. And it just took me five years to come home and that was with John. Yeah, it seems that, uh, I mean, it's no surprise to me that America suited you and particularly New York. Now, I know you've written about this in, in your in your memo, in your book. You got married to a record producer by the name of Jimmy Miller. Yep, that's right. And that didn't end well. Well, look, you know, we all deserve one practice. Um, <laughs> Some of us have had more than one, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> one misdemeanor, one little practice. Uh, yeah, uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time and it was certainly exciting. 
Uh, but no, it didn't end well. You know, New Yorkers through and through, um, you know, a bit, as I turned out, a bit drug addled. Uh, and, you know, it was a pretty fast pace. You imagine those times, Studio 54, uh, record studios, uh, recording studios of, uh, of all, you know, every third commercial in New York was made in those studios. So a lot of the famous would be walking in and out. Uh, yeah, they were pretty heady times. Um, uh, but yeah, New Yorkers, uh, New Yorkers themselves, those born and bred, are a very different breed to anybody else who lives in America. Did he treat you badly? Oh, look, there were certainly times um, abuse came in into it, uh, and uh, you know, I, it was absolutely typical. A typical relationship, uh, as you just read about, you get a bit more isolated. You know, um, your your funds, you you don't have any money. You're a long way from home. You don't want to call home and tell them it's so terrible because you feel like an idiot. Um, all, all your other friends, you uh, are forced to virtually be withdrawn from and you're completely controlled. Uh, and it, no, it's not, not a, um, a pretty a pretty existence, but I was pretty determined and I thought I could see it through as it turned out. Um, I couldn't, and I I got out literally in the you know the stealth of night uh, because I I just wanted to live. But the good the good part of this story, of course, is that that meant that you met the love of your life in in the fabulous John, and he helped you actually get out of that relationship, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, without question, because John and I uh, became friends for a, a good uh, 15, 18 months before we ever dated. Uh, he was setting up the first lotto in America in the late 70s when they thought it was a fast food. Uh, and he'd gone <laughs> from England to, to New York and brought over from Australia uh, his marketing director. And those two boys spent several months and then he brought his, um, uh, his marketing director brought his wife over. And they were Aussies, and I had perchance met him, you know, on a one-off some a year or two before. And uh, when they were having a night off, uh, they just rang and said, oh, you know, I'm in town, come and visit. And that was the first time I met John. And he came to the studios where um, I was sitting behind a, um, a screen uh, in a proper studio to our studio singing a song mm. um, on to, to tape and John where my first husband was and that's uh, how we all met and we were good friends and used to all go out as a bit of a team for, for quite some time. Never lost his accent, John, did he? I mean, I met him plenty no, of times. Well, oh, yeah, but funnily enough, I, I did beat quite a bit of out of him. He was a lot more pommy before that. I'm going to talk about John at length in a moment. You come back to Australia and incredibly, and I never knew this, and I know I've read a lot about you. You ended up on the restless years. Oh, shoot. Anybody who, who remembers that should be dead. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm still alive, luckily. <laughs> the restless years. Well, I, was hope, I was hoping they were, that's all. <laughs> what was the part? Um, well, funny you should ask. Um, I played um, a, uh, a young girl who lived at home with her mother, who under the thumb of her her mother, um, and she had very black, dark hair, uh, but, you know, tied back in a bun and was very mousy and boring, and her mother used to yell at her and, you know, make her do her bidding. And funnily enough, one time, um, I was sent to the hairdresser, and my golly gosh, I 
came out blonde with long blonde hair. Who would have thought a script like that would happen to me? No, surely not. (laughs) How many years did you do that for? Oh, it's actually probably less than a year because that was the precursor to Neighbours. And it had gone on very successfully for several years and then it it came to a close and they were looking to put something else together which happened to be Neighbours. And so basically I ran off to Tamworth with the doctor. No, scandal. Yes, scandal, scandal. Uh, but, yes, it was so much fun. And I look back at some of the people that, you know, I worked with, Benita Collins. If I think mm-hmm. hard enough, I think I can remember the theme from the wrestler's year. <laughs> I bet don't. you can. <laughs> no, don't. Was that on 10 as well? As, as, so when you yes, say it was, it was a precursor to Neighbours, so Neighbours came after the wrestler's years. Yes, but Neighbours actually started on Channel 7 and was dropped out for several months. Well, they regretted that marketing decision, didn't they? they? Well, it was then um, Brian Walsh, who has for many years been with Foxtel as a program genius. He was publicist at Channel 10, and when he saw they dropped Neighbours, he was the one proactive enough to pick it up, put it on Channel 10 and make um, Jason and Kylie huge stars. Worked them to death, mind you, but they were huge stars. And, uh, you know, they should be very grateful for Brian Walsh and so should Channel 10 because it's still going. So who was the genius at 10 who's sitting there watching uh, Restless Years and you run off with the doctor to Tamworth, suddenly has the bright idea, I know, Let's take the blonde girl from Restless Years and put her on Good Morning Australia with Gordon Elliott to do what was a pioneering breakfast TV show. Who was the genius who thought of that? Well, if you really want to know how it happened, when Mm -hmm. Restless Years finished, um, you know, I'm here living happily with John, but I needed to work, you know, and I'd do a bit of singing out at the RSLs and all that, but I needed a job. So I went to um, the uh, general manager of the station and said, hi, hi, it's Kerry ann here. Um, I really like to do a job. And he's gone, look, why don't you go and see these two guys, Peter and Peter, who um, are putting together um, this, uh, they've put together Good Morning Australia. Uh, and you've got to remember, this is when Rupert Murdoch owned Channel 10, way back in the early 80s. Yeah, I remember. So, yeah, so he, Rupert said to these two boys, put Good Morning Australia together like Good Morning America. Uh-huh. Uh, so I said, oh, okay. And John said, okay, go and get this job, you know, whatever. You, be, I don't know, producer, you can research. All it means is you've got to look up stuff. So I went, I arranged this meeting with the two of them and I walked in um, and it was probably one of the times where I thought, listening to the beginning of the conversation, I was smart enough just to shut the heck up because as they were talking, see, I'm going for um, a producer or researcher job. Mm. That's in my mind. Um, they, in turn, thought I was going for an on-camera position. Now, this after about 20 minutes, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they're doing what? And he said, look, we could possibly, science is going on holiday, um, so why we could only give you commit to a couple of days. Then we'll see how it goes. And I've gone, okay, what would I be doing? Well, you know, you sit next to Gordon and da-da-da-da, and I'm going, oh, my God. Did your mouth drop open or did you keep your emotions in check? Oh, no, completely, completely under wraps. Mm. And I walked out and going, oh, my God, did you give a current affair? So I came home to John and I said, he said, did you get the job? And I've gone, 
yes, but it's a bit different. And he says, well, what? He said, I'm actually hosting the show. He said, you're not a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how fantastic is that? You must have walked out there with a spring in your step. Oh, but, but in nerves, those days, Then the nerves kicked oh, in, right? Oh, far out. But also, when I went to where I did a couple of days, uh, Sue Kellaway had gone on holiday and it was on October. Then a couple of days worked into a week, into two weeks. And they obviously kept me on because they thought I was must have been okay. Um, but do you reckon after a little while, the journos around town decided to go, who the hell is this girl? She's not a journalist. And oh, man, did I get some payback from them. But many years later, I did say to Peter Brennan, the EP, and said, why on earth did you hire me? And he said, because you asked normal questions that suburban people want an answer. You didn't sound like a journalist. Very smart. And, of course, Peter Brennan went on to a hugely successful career in American television, as did, as did Gordon. Now, those pairings, as I know, only work if there's chemistry between you and Gordon. So you go there for two days. Gordon's uh, sitting next to you. He wouldn't have wanted to feel at all undermined. He would want to feel that he had someone who he could work with in a partnership. Did it immediately click or did it take some time? Well, um, for several months, every time I'd go after the show was finished, go back into makeup or somewhere in the studio and the, the monitors were up there, um, I'd look up um, and there was another girl reading the same auto cue I did that morning. And he used to dragging these girls and these people in that audition, audition, audition. Uh, But I worked and sat next to Gordon for five years and I think, you know, it was a very successful five years. Um, At the end, he and I didn't have a great relationship uh, because he, you know, know, I don't know what it was, but it took me a long time to figure out he didn't actually like or respect me. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter because I used to turn around and say, Gordon, I get paid to make you look better. Very nice retort. And he went to America, didn't he? And it actually yeah. ended up pretty successful working on oh, very. The Current Affair yeah. in New York. Yeah. Uh, well, his, the, most of his success was uh, through um, doing stuff on the Food Channel. Yeah. So that, you know, that was pretty good. And, yes, he's, um, uh, yeah, he's done extremely well. And Peter Brennan, I still see Peter and his wife, Lisa, if, if, over the last uh, 20 years when John and I go back to the States. And always have been. He was the one who found Judge Judy. I think the show was originally for Paramount. He, when they decided they wanted to do this judge show, he found this woman who'd spent more than twenty years um, as a judge in family law, and he said that was the key to find somebody who had negotiated, um, you know, under difficult circumstances, the most. you know, difficult, hard, awful part of the law, which is family law. And that's why he said she was so good uh, in the courtroom. And they tried Judge Joe Brown and a few other things, but he said a lot of them had been criminal judges. And he said it just wasn't the same. She's still going and earning a fortune. Earning, oh, she's probably, oh, without question, probably one of the wealthiest um, uh, television personalities in America, without question. Like, she's $100 million a year or something. Oh, I could judge everybody for that. Yeah, me too. Give me that role any day of the week. <laughs> so you get you have 10 years roundabout on GMA. You had nine years on Channel 9 with the Kerry Ann Show, three years doing midday. So that's roughly quarter of a century on daily TV. So, so w- what's the secret of being able to do that? 
Look, I, I never analysed it. I just did what I had to do. Um, I think basically you, you've got to be yourself because, uh, let's face it, live TV, after a nanosecond, scratch the surface and I'll see who you are. Yeah. Simple as that. You have to, I think that, isn't the fancy word at the moment authentic? Mm, um, yeah, probably. Yeah, I hate that word. But it, it, I'm looking for another word that you just, you just got to be who you are. But also with a lot of the shows, and they were all a bit different, and Good Morning Australia is just such a brilliant training ground. So to be frank, in 1981, I, and Gordon probably had fairly good right to go, what the, who, who is this woman? What is, she doesn't know what she's doing because I wasn't a journalist. But boy, I tried to learn as fast as I could. Um, and I had now, so the thing that I really believe in, IQ versus EQ. And what I don't have in academic intelligence, I certainly have in emotional intelligence. And I'm a bit of a street fighter and I'm a bit of a, a normal, ordinary person. And I've, I've never thought anything different. I, I, could, I could just feel, feel what people wanted to talk about and listen. And Parkinson, he came over and sat, um, Michael Parkinson sat with me for two weeks before he started breakfast television with David Frost back in the 80s. Yep. And I remember he always said, never ask a question that will give you a yes, no answer. And you think about that so many times, you think, well, it's so obvious, but how often do we do it? He said, and just know more than you, know your subject, know more than you ever ever had to know and listen, listen, listen. So, you know, an interview I always took as being, uh, you know, the, the interview itself is the tip of the iceberg. Underneath all that uh, water is all the information. So wherever that person goes, you feel confident that you can follow them because it's more interesting than what you've got on paper. What I've always loved about you is that you can sit comfortably interviewing someone like, so I'll just pluck a name like a Leo Sayer or something, uh, and then after the next ad break, you can have the Prime Minister sitting there. This was particularly when you were doing midday. Um, is it the same technique regardless of the personality you're interviewing? So if you're interviewing an entertainer, just do your research, find out the, their background, know what makes them tick and what makes them want to have a chat. And on politics, just know what pushes the buttons of the politician you're speaking with. Yes, it is the same, but you just have to listen. Um, politicians are a little, a little bit harder, especially in the last, you know, um, the last 15 years because they're so primed and wound up by their minders and, you know, they've got key points. Um, in, the, in the 90s, you've got to say, politicians weren't that um, – uh, cued into no. responses. I mean, you've they, interviewed they everyone from uh, from Hawk on, probably maybe even before Hawk. Oh. Maybe I don't know about Whitlam, but certainly Hawk. Uh, and yeah, then, Whitlam right on. And then Keating. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were they were actual personalities themselves. That's what made them, them easier to interview. I mean, I can remember both presenting and producing radio and trying to deal with people like Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, and they would just give it to you. I mean, if, if oh. you know, bang. Uh, but your famous uh, Paul Keating getting him to do the Macarena. I mean, that is still some of the most but classic That was actually TV. Peter Costello. Oh, Costello, that's um, right. Yeah, that's right. But remember Paul Keating in, in the election that he lost, and even after that, I'm, you know, I was sort of proud to say the uh, Canberra Gallery, of which I was terrified, 
because uh, you know <laughs> they sit there the you know front two rows are all these really serious looking people and i've got a you know a jacket and pair of high heels on and i'm going oh they think i'm an idiot and i used to get terrified when they'd all take up their positions but pork eating sat there and it was written up after that interview, when I talked about his young daughter who said, sat on his lap and said, Daddy, if you win this election, I probably won't see you again until I'm 15 and then I'll be doing my own thing. And they all said that's when they knew in his mind he'd lost the election. That's a, It was a great uh, quote from him and it was a very good question to get it out of him too. I mean, because hmm. the, the Canberra Press Gallery asks those uniform questions and get uniform answers. It's, it's interviewers yeah, but like they ask yourself. questions about policy. Yeah, right. I don't ask questions no, about policy. It's about the personality. I mean, that's what you yeah. got out of those people so well and it hmm. gave us all an insight into the sort of people they were. How did you get on with Keating? Oh, look, in those, there's no question if you stuffed it up. You know, he'll, oh, he's yeah. back. But no, I, you know, he was fine. I'd, I'd met him socially a few times. I haven't seen him in many, many years. But, you know, he was fine. Um, but I remember, and you would as a journo, remember when John Howard um, was about to turn 64 and everybody, including Joe Hockey, who I know you know pretty well, mm. um, they, the bet was on, oh, when he's 64, he's going to retire, hand the reins over to, you know, Peter Costello. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, you know, I just, I just don't think so. And I was playing golf with Joe. He said, "Cag, I'm in cabinet. I know he will." And I've gone, "Oh well, I, I just don't see it that way." So I had John Howard on, uh, and he had just returned uh, from uh, seeing uh, President Bush in the United States. So I did all, you know, the obvious. Hey, what's it like being down at that fancy, um, you know, the, the ranch that they go to? Did you steal the soap and the towels and blah? And uh, I said, wow. Um, and he explained the barbecue that he did. And I said, well, how on earth, knowing that I also knew that uh, Bush, who loved uh, rugby union, apparently was coming out in the October. So this was like uh, June or July when everybody's convinced on his birthday he's going to hand over when I'm 64. Will you still need me? Yep. Um, so I said to him, well, what an amazing privilege to then be able to reciprocate um, the, the the president of the United States. How are you going to do that in October? And he said, oh, we've got some fabulous plans. I said, oh, so you will still be in the lodge. <laughs> Bingo, got him. Yeah, but you see, nobody in Canberra ever picked it up. Didn't they? They didn't, just no. ignored it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's typical. And I was right. <laughs> Let's talk about the love of your life, John. Um you, you meet him, you come back to Australia, uh, and I've met you as a couple plenty of times. Um, did he like going out as much as you? I mean, because I would see you out as a couple. You'd be uh, slugging champagne and ripping up the dance floor, and John and I'd be standing <laughs> propping up the bar having a beer. Did he actually like going out? There was a, He did, and he was very good at it um, because, you know, I didn't always spend when we were out – that much time with him. Yes, um, I know. Because, <laughs> because very early on, he said, but, but I, I didn't see you. I said, John, I'll see you at home. We're getting to this function. You go that way. I go that way. Come back and report. As <laughs> simple as that. And we used to have a great time. He did, he, he did like going out. Probably um, not quite as much as I did, but we always went out as a couple. And he was also very good 
uh, to take out. He he got people. He had not a malicious bone in his body. He's a he lovely would talk guy. To, yeah, he would talk and could talk to everybody. Um, doesn't matter whether they were the gossip columnists. He he was just a, a little sacred species, and luckily they never never had a crack at him. Just me. Uh, he and he was wonderful, and because he was you know pretty bright, pretty intelligent. It doesn't matter where you took him, he could just have fun. He was a very clever businessman, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very, very clever. Uh, did first lotto in America, and now it's like, you know, how many multi-billion dollar checks do they write or, you know, billion dollar checks for lotto now? He started all that off. Uh, so, yeah, he's a, he's a very, very clever guy, but his passion was making um, O-gauge British Railway modelling trains. And didn't he establish this extraordinary train system in your house? Yep. Right. In the middle of our house, still to this very day, <laughs> there is a 15-metre by 3-metre railway station, which is an exact replica of Shrewsbury Station in England, uh, and two tracks went out the end of the house, which went down one side, then to the other side, uh, and two tracks went off that through the garage, back around the front, across the hallway, and through a one-foot brick wall. And that was there were like three circuits. It'd take to put it all together. It'd only do twice a year, and needed four of them to to make sure it was all happening. But uh, he he enjoyed that. He loved to sit there and from a flat piece of metal, make a train. I mean, a most beautiful piece of work that uh, was just, you know, he was probably a handful of the best creators in the world. Were you always understanding of this particular passion? Well, apparently over the years, apparently I was very understanding because they'd all walk in and the girls would go, you're kidding, you've let him put it. I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> he, took, he took two metres off the kitchen like I care. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, and all the women go, you, you let him do it. I said, he, he loves it. Why would, I, why would I want to stop that? I mean, I do my thing. He does his thing. And literally in the middle of the house, and he did take, um, I think it was a metre and a half off the width of the kitchen. And the architect, when we were you know, developing this, he says, do you know John's taken that? And I've gone, yeah. Is that, is that a problem? Happy Doesn't me- bother me. Happy memories. Um Less happy. John's no longer with us, of course, and uh, the day of that accident must have just been so – I mean, you were doing what you love doing. You're playing golf and you're at the Bonville Golf Course and just a simple accident, kerri Yep, 850 centimetres on the balcony with no railings. One metre is the legal height and there was no railing. It was just literally a foot when he was asked to step in for a photograph and the footing – at the end was a um, um, uh, a border with a planter, and the there was, the soil was uh, you know less than the top of the planter, and it, his foot just went, his heel went in, and he went side. If he if he'd fallen three inches another way, six inches another way, probably nothing would have happened, but you know bruises. But unfortunately, it was you know tragic beyond belief. How was it caring for him? Oh, was it hard? Oh, I'm, and I I had the best helpful for quadriplegics. It's it's just so different. Uh, everything has to be done from them. Um, toileting, feeding, 
changing the channel, um, anything, because he had no, uh, virtually no movement uh, in his fingers um, or his hands or anything. So uh, it was just uh, relentless, constant. Uh, but he, he was quite remarkable with it for, for a long time. Do you could you get any sense of how he was coping mentally with it? Again, being British, stoic. Um, it, it I know at times it was, you know, just devastatingly hard. Um, but one of the things he wanted when when I was um, um, asked to accept Hall of Fame, he wanted to be there. And boy, you know, just trying to get a quadriplegic from one city to another is a major exercise um, uh, because you've got to do everything from the type of plane to get down there, putting his power chair in the the hold and you always go, my God, is it going to come out okay? Um, but I've got to say Qantas were spectacular at the time and you could only travel on one particular plane because it had the little chair that they could uh, uh, you know, transport him into. Then at the other end, first on, last off, uh, then again in Melbourne, you've got to have the hydro hydraulic taxi, uh, not a, a wheelchair access taxi. You've got to have the hydraulic one. Then at the hotel, you have to have um, you know a special bed brought in, and you have to find a nurse down there who's a, who can do. It takes three hours to to get him out of bed uh, and ready. And that was every morning, eight till eleven, every single morning, seven days a week. Um, a registered nurse that uh, would hoist him out of bed, do what they've got to do, dress him, etc. Uh, and then, you know, then for the, the Logies, and I've gone, and if you can imagine quadriplegics can't move their arms, so all of his beautiful suits and jackets and all that sort of stuff, and his black tie didn't fit. And he said, oh, it's all right, I'll wear I said, you are not going to the Logies, not dressed properly. And I figured out, um, the only way you can put on something on his arms is if you cut it uh, the back of the jacket all the way up to the, the, the collar. Mm-hmm. And here's his Armani suit. And I'm sitting oh. there in the bedroom. I said, I'm going to give this a crack. And he's going, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Got a pair of suits. What are you doing? So I cut his Armani jacket and his uh, dinner shirt all the way up and we tried it on. And all I had to do is put one, one arm on at a time and the other arm and slip it over his head. Nobody ever saw the back that was cut all the way up the back. And then with the pants, cut them all the back and put a big um, elasticized strip because you can't have anything harsh on their skin because their skin's very, it's like paper because there's not a lot of blood flow. Um, and then with his shoes, he always loved his shoes. And there I was with all of his beautiful shoes that would go out and especially his black patent ones for the Logies, I got a craft knife and he's going, you're not going to cut the, and I did. So I got a craft knife and cut it all the way down uh, the back on the heel just so I could put it on his foot. So uh, I became a dressmaker as well. How did you know to do that? Well, I didn't. I was just, he wasn't going to the Logies, not dressed properly. So did you Google how to dress a quadriplegic or No, no. Well, you always notice they, you know, they mostly spend their lives in tracksuits. Yeah, that's any fantastic. any any fabric that that's very stretchy, um, and they wear a lot of t-shirts, extra extra large t-shirts, 
an extra, extra large trackies. My husband was not going to the Logies looking like that and we were not ever going out to a restaurant looking like that. So um, once I figured out you just, it was like dressing a four-year-old child, you know, you put one in, arm here and you put your left arm there and drag it over the head and they go, oh, okay, mummy, that's good. Do you miss him? Oh, every single day. Every single morning, every single night. You know, I'm sitting around during COVID, um, you know, not a lot of fun when nobody, mind you, COVID wasn't that bad for me because I still work three days a week at Studio 10. So I got the chance to, you know, get up in the morning, uh, socially distance on set, uh, use my brain, talk to good mates in there, get dressed up, have a bit of fun, come home. And we in New South Wales were allowed to play golf, Steve. Isn't yeah, that funny? Unlike, unlike Victoria, which was ridiculous. A couple of quick questions for you. What do you think of social media? Um, I, I think Twitter is a sewer. I think it is mostly, I'd love to do the numbers on how many people actually regularly do Twitter other than the news. People who um, uh, really get involved and start Twitter fights and are mean and are nasty. Uh, I don't do Twitter at all, but my experience um, at second hand is is not very fa- favourable. I don't even do Facebook. I do do Instagram uh, because I like pictures um, and I just do nice little things every once in a while. How did you get passionate about golf? Um, my dad and brothers were golfers, but we, as girls, we um, we weren't taught to play and didn't particularly bother us at the time. But my sister, um, 20 years ago, married a golfer uh, and was expected to play golf. And so when they kept talking about it, um, I got into it and love it and I'm passionate about it. What's your handicap now? Uh, golf Australia handicap is 16.2. You're doing extremely well. Do you think the media in Australia are sexist and ageist? Um, I don't think they're sexist. I definitely think they're, they border ageist. And so people who are over a certain age, particularly in television, it seems, uh, are discarded, but you've managed to survive because you're so good. Well, I think uh, I just end up in positions over the years. It was just I I filled, um, you know, the the position and doing live TV, take the mickey out of myself. Uh, Yeah. So, but I do think, you know, there is a whole ageist thing, but now everybody's, you know, it would appear is a racist or, you know, and they throw that word away. They don't really even know what racist means because everybody is apparently uh, that has a different opinion to said person is a racist. A couple of observations about people you've worked with and against. Kerry Packer? Um, absolutely incredibly strong person who could, if he, if he really tried uh, and wanted to be a bully, uh, could give it a real crack, um, but like you know, all people like that, he'd test people, uh, and if you didn't wear it, you know, you got left alone. I I never had any issues because he was, um, uh, you know, he'd grill you, uh, and then I'd say my piece, and he seemed to accept it. So I never had any issues. But um, I think I certainly know enough people who did, but I did what I had to do, and. Uh, and couldn't do any more than my best. Ray Martin. Oh, Ray is just you know the, you know the wonderful, 
father son that everybody loves. I think he's just a delightful guy. And again, Ray's still doing what he wants on his terms uh, anytime he wants. And he's a beautiful photographer as well. And uh, John Laws? Well, John was just, you know, without question, a unique and hugely successful uh, uh, character slash broadcaster. He knew how to talk to people and he came from an era, um, especially when that beautiful voice. What a voice. Um, through that, oh, yeah, that voice. I mean, people just, they don't look for broadcasters like that anymore. But along with that, that voice, he also had the intellect who knew, uh, you know, just how to get to people. He was like you. He always knew uh, when to ask a question where he knew he was going to trap the person into giving an answer that would end up being newsworthy. That was such a talent he had. He yep. did it with all the PMs he ever interviewed. Yeah, I, I agree. Very, you know, just dynamic. Well, long may you rule on Australian television. It's been a, such a pleasure on uh, talk to you today, Kerry Ann. Thank you very much. Well, Steve, I know this, uh, you know, your, your podcasting now is just going to be huge. I can't wait to uh, <laughs> to crack on and have a have a listen. Uh, but look, thank you for you know for giving us the time because you and I have been mates for a very long time and and enjoyed it. So uh, I really hope that we can uh, catch up and play some golf soon. Absolutely, Kerry Ann Kennel, and especially when you get up when you get up to Sydney as well, you come and give us a call. We'll do that. Thanks for listening to our latest on the record podcast. Coming up in the next episode, Australia's best known investigative journalist and the man who unmasked Queensland's Doctor Death. Hedley Thomas.